0: So today we are continuing in our new series, entitled Every Wind of Doctrine, which is based on the passage in Ephesians, that becoming mature in the faith, coming to the point where we won't be tossed around by every new wind of doctrine, every uh, wind of teaching, but that instead we would be firm and secure in the scripture, in our knowledge of the scripture, and that we would be like the Bereans, that when we hear new teaching, we wouldn't just take it immediately at face value, but that instead we would diligently search the scripture to see if this new teaching is indeed consistent with the Word of God. And so this morning we are going to continue uh, looking into uh, part two, the prosperity gospel. I would invite you to bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is according to your word and sound doctrine that we know that we can be firm in the faith, not tossed to and fro, not deceived, not deceived but instead be secure in your word and in the pure gospel that you've presented to us through it. And so we pray, Father, again, speak to us through this word, through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one warm spring day, a young boy named Jimmy was lying on a hillside, staring up at the puffy white clouds floating by overhead, and he was imagining their different shapes and what he could see. And on a whim, he just said out loud, God, are you really there? And to his astonishment, a voice came back from the clouds. Yes, Jimmy, what can I do for you? Well, seizing the opportunity to have a private audience with God, Jimmy replied, God, what is a million years like to you? And knowing that Jimmy could not understand the concept of eternity... God responded, A million years, Jimmy, is like a minute. Oh, said Jimmy. Well then, what's a million dollars like to you? Well, a million dollars to me, Jimmy, is like a penny. Wow, remarked Jimmy. Then suddenly he had an idea. Inspiration struck him, and he asked, Well, you're so generous, Lord. Can I have one of your pennies? Sure thing, Jimmy, God replied, in just a minute. (laughs) Let me ask you, have you ever asked God for one of his pennies? (laughs) Just one. Have you ever asked for one? Well, I love that story because it demonstrates something very uh, important for us. It demonstrates how vastly different our eternal and sovereign God views things than we do. You see, Jimmy was thinking according to his earthly perspective, thinking that the best thing that God could give him on this whole earth was wealth. And to that we might also add the best thing would be wealth, but not only that, but we would also like health and a long life with which to enjoy it all. But is that how God views our lives? Is that how God views our existence and things on this earth? Is God blessing us according to earthly standards with wealth and health and a long life? Is that really God's ultimate will and purpose for our lives? And that conversely, poverty, hardship, and illness then have no place in the Christian life. Well, there is a certain teaching which has become increasingly popular in the last half century that at its core believes just that. It is most commonly referred to as the prosperity gospel. It also goes by other names like the word of faith movement or health and wealth. Today we are going to focus on the wealth emphasis within this teaching and in the next installment we'll focus on the health emphasis. Now a common phrase used within this teaching is name it and claim it. Now you may have heard some version of this statement before to name it and claim it. And it essentially expresses the teaching that if you desire a specific blessing from God, all you need to do is verbally, audibly name it, then muster up enough faith to claim it, and then whatever it is, no matter what, God is guaranteed to give it to you. However, if on the off chance you've named and claimed something but not received it, well then, according to the prosperity gospel teaching, that simply means you didn't have enough faith And so you need to believe harder the next time you ask. Now, this morning, as we go through this, I'm going to be naming a select few of the prominent preachers of the prosperity gospel. And I'm doing this not for the purpose of finger-pointing or condemning them, but to simply give you a baseline, looking at their own words and teachings so that we can do as the Bereans did. With Paul's teaching, when he came to them, And he diligently compared what Paul was teaching to the scriptures to see if it matches up. And so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. Now, one of the 20th century preachers who brought this teaching into the mainstream spotlight of the church was the late Kenneth Hagin. Now, Kenneth Hagin taught that the Holy Spirit would make you rich, healthy, and anointed with spiritual gifts if you would just have enough faith to name it and claim it. So, if you want money, just name it, have enough faith, claim it, and you've got it. Now, you may not recognize the name Kenneth Hagin, but one of the most famous preachers who has followed in his prosperity teaching is Joel Osteen. Now, Joel Osteen, most of you will have heard of. He's written the very popular book, Your Best Life Now. In an interview with the Christian Post, Joel Osteen said, quote, I'm using his own words, he said, quote, I believe if you are struggling financially, then you have not got the victory. God didn't create you to be average or poor. So essentially, what he is saying is that if you are a financially poor Christian, you cannot be living a victorious Christian life because God didn't create you to be financially poor but rich. Now, a statement like that, if it hasn't already sent up a red flag for you, I'm going to show you in today's scripture soon why a statement like that should be sending up a red flag. And in fact, to show you why it is entirely unbiblical. Another leading preacher in this movement, whose name is Creflo Dollar, and no, I'm not making that up, his actual name is Creflo Dollar, Mr. Dollar said, quote, Some people say it's about peace, joy and love. No, it's about money. God is trying to put material wealth into your hands. So let me ask you, is that really what it's about? Is that really what God is trying to do? That his primary aim is to put material wealth into our hands? Well, let's examine it in the light of scripture. His authoritative word. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul warned the young pastor Timothy of false teachers who were adding things to the pure gospel of salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these false teachers, Paul points out, were teaching that salvation was Jesus, yes, but we need to add some things. To Jesus and they were saying that it was Jesus plus abstaining from marriage plus following the Jewish dietary laws and Paul unequivocally stated that such teaching adding anything to the gospel of Christ alone any of that teaching actually came from deceiving spirits and demons and to add anything to the pure gospel is to fall back into legalism and it's just wrong. And so now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Paul's going to give Timothy some more instruction here. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 1. He writes, "...all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better." because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And so here I want to make the first point. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with money right now, and I'm going to explain to you why it does. Because point number one is financial status is not an indicator of spiritual status. Financial status is not an indicator of spiritual status. Let me show you. In this passage, we see two categories of Christians listed. Those who are slaves and those who are masters. Now remember, in the first century Roman Empire, slaves were among the poorest of the poor. In fact, as a slave in the Roman Empire, legally they owned nothing. Even the clothes on their backs technically belonged to their master. But notice that Paul does not say that Christians who were slaves in this position, he does not say that they were somehow failing to live a victorious Christian life simply because they were financially poor. He also does not say that they should just name it and claim it in order to become wealthy like their masters. Instead, he actually says the opposite. Paul instructs them to be respectful and extra diligent in their service as slaves, so that their good witness would not hinder, but further spread the gospel. Now, on the other side of the equation, we see that he also refers to Christians who are the masters. This would put them in the upper bracket of financial status. They are wealthy enough, as now Roman citizens, not slaves, wealthy enough to own slaves. And so, in that time of the world, this was a common practice, and it implied status, it implied wealth. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't shame those who are in the position of masters. He doesn't shame them for their wealth. Instead, he infers that they should also view their slaves as dear fellow believers and that they should be devoted to their welfare. And so here we see something very clearly. Financial status meant nothing to Paul. Whether a Christian was rich or poor to Paul, of prime importance, was having a good witness so that the gospel would advance. That was his primary focus. You know who else financial status meant nothing to? Well, none other than our Lord Jesus. In his ministry, he didn't even own a house. For when someone asked him if they could join him, he replied that even foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking what he's lacking, Jesus told him to actually go and just give away all of his considerable wealth to the poor and he would have treasure in heaven. So what Jesus is saying to someone who is financially rich, he's essentially saying, "Come, become financially poor and come follow me. And he's, and he's actually implying directly that in doing so, his spiritual status would not decrease, but increase, because he would now have treasure in heaven rather than on earth. And we see later that when it even came time to pay the temple tax, Jesus didn't even have enough money to pay that, so he gives his disciples this really wonky instruction to go catch a fish, open its mouth, and there will be the coins in there to pay the temple tax. And we see that even there, He wasn't carrying a whole lot of money around. Earthly wealth and status didn't mean anything to our Lord. He was not measuring people's spiritual standing by their earthly wealth. James chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, instructs us accordingly. It says, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, referring to a Sunday morning, perhaps like this, a man comes in wearing gold ring, fine clothing, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And so here we see crystal clear: financial status, earthly financial status, is not an indicator of spiritual status or relationship to and with the Lord. So, secondly, godliness and the gospel is not to be viewed as a means to financial gain. Godliness and the gospel is not to be viewed as a means to financial gain. Returning now to Paul in 1 Timothy 6. He continues from the end of verse 2. Continuing on to verse 5. The end of verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unel unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now let me focus you in on that very last line. Those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You see, the prosperity gospel is not an entirely new idea. Far from it. Clearly, in the first century, Paul's day, there were those who believed and taught that godliness was, in fact, a means to financial gain, financial prosperity. Now, it should come as little surprise to us that most of the famous prosperity preachers today are very wealthy by anyone's standards. And that's partly due to the teaching Embedded within the prosperity gospel, the teaching that giving to God's work is broken down into a formula, almost like an investment strategy. It teaches along the lines of if you give $1, you'll get $10 back somehow. So if you give $10, you'll get $100 back, and if you give $100, you'll get $1,000 back, and so on and so forth. It's, it's really broken down into this investment formula. Now, I want to be clear about something because there's a nuanced thing here. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, as well as other supporting scriptures, does indicate and show that God, in fact, does bless us when we give to his work generously. He does bless us when we give to his work cheerfully. But giving is not to be viewed as a formula to somehow gain our own financial means. It's not to be seen as a formula to somehow get rich quick through God's divine blessing. Because then we are beginning to give with wrong motives. We are to give to advance the work, not to advance our bank accounts. It is to look and to give with false motives. And Paul had no sympathy for this kind of thinking or teaching. You could hear again what he just described those people as. It was not very gracious of Paul to describe preachers who viewed godliness as a means to financial gain, but he is being crystal clear and blunt in his description of them as them being robbed of the truth. He says they're robbed of the truth. And he goes on to correctly identify that hidden within the roots of this type of teaching is greed. And he then pulls it up into the light to expose the roots under God's truth. And that truth is that God and the gospel of Jesus Christ are not to be viewed as a means to financial gain or some sort of get-rich-quick scheme. And the primary reason is that God, his salvation through Jesus Christ, his blessings for us are so much greater, infinitely greater than temporary earthly wealth or health. God's blessings for us in Christ, my friends, are eternal. First Peter 1 verse 4 says, It is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And so think about this. Let me ask you this question. Why would we spend most of our lives and our energies just to add a few zeros to our retirement savings, When Jesus is preparing for us an eternal mansion that is literally out of this world, why do we spend so much time on earthly houses and dwellings and zeros on bank statements when he is preparing an inheritance for us that will never go away, will never fade, will never perish? That house, that mansion in glory is never going to need the shingles replaced. All the contractors here are going to be out of work. Isn't it awesome? It's a good thing. Yeah, Phil's cheering. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, I've been joking around since we've moved to our new place that we've made the full circuit in Clarny now. We started out on, on this side of, of the church, on Bay Ave, in the little yellow house. Then we moved to the little, the little uh, slightly bigger house in the middle of town in Laurier. Now we've since moved to the other side of the church in the in the slightly larger house now at Johnson Place, and I've been saying, I've only got one stop left. It's Bayside. <laughs> See, I made the full circle. <laughs> now, I know, it's a bad joke, but no one wants to move into Bayside. It's a great place. They take care of our people. I'm thankful for it. But the fact is, no one personally wants to have to move into Bayside. It's just, it's just reality. But you know what? I've long since made peace with the fact that I might end up there one day. I've also made peace with the fact that I might not. I might not live that long. I simply don't know. Only the Lord knows. I am a sojourner in this life. And so whether it's 40 years long or 104 years long, I will pass through and I will be gone into eternity. Johnson Place is not my fixed address. And though I've already put a few more hours into fixing it up than I had planned, including a two-week course in patience called Assembling an Ikea Island, (coughs) affectionately dubbed Danny's Island of Doom, all of that, it's all going to fade away. It's not going to last. I'm enjoying it for the time, but it's not going to last. One day I will move on. And this summer, someone was canvassing the town putting bible verses in people's mailboxes i don't know who it was but in our mailbox i found a picture a little poster and on it was a picture of the earth and over the earth was the words of jesus and it said what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet lose his own soul and i took that and i stuck it on our fridge and it's been hanging there ever since It's a daily reminder to me, every time I look at that fridge and I see that verse, a reminder that as a Christian, our primary focus is not to be on earthly things that won't last. Our primary focus is to be on the things that will endure and last for eternity. So now back to verse 6, 1 Timothy. Paul, he now lays lays upon us the truth. This is it, listen. But godliness with contentment... Is great gain. Verse 7 For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Flee from all this. So God's word is clearly saying that teachers treating godliness as a means to financial gain personally, it's just wrong. And it also says that wanting to get rich is a trap and it leads to ruin and destruction. It also says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it also says that some people eager for more money have wandered from the faith as a result. Now, just to contrast this once more to the prosperity gospel. This is what Mr. Creflo Dollar said in one sermon. He said, some people say it's about peace, joy, and love. No, no. It's about money. God is trying to put material wealth into your hands. Now let's move on to verse 11. Paul says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So in God's word, Paul clearly contradicts those like Mr. Dollar who say, It's all about money. Paul says, No, it's not. Flee from all of that. Flee from greed. Flee from the love and pursuit of money. Flee from all of that and pursue what's going to last. The spiritual blessings, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Those are things worth pursuing. Flee from the others. Pursue what will last. Now let me be clear about something here. I'm going to hit the pause button. God can and does bless us with daily physical provisions, including money. He does. We are even invited by Jesus to ask for physical provisions, as we even see embedded within the Lord's Prayer is the simple request, give us this day our daily bread. That's a request for, for physical provisions. And so God's word is not saying that money is evil it is also not saying that having money is evil. We do not have to take a vow of poverty or live in tents or even feel guilty for having a lot of money. That's not what the Word of God is saying. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 12 says, Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. And so here it compares wisdom to money being a shelter. But even then, wisdom is still superior to money. Money itself is neutral. It can provide a shelter over our heads, and like that shelter, the roof is neutral. The the roof doesn't have any spiritual quality about it. It simply is. Money simply is. In our hands, money is a tool. Nothing more or less. And remember... That everything good we have, including our money, ultimately comes from God, our provider. You know, people talk a lot about how 99% of the earth's wealth is owned by 1% of the earth's people. And so while the ultra-wealthy may impress us, what are they compared to God? You know, think about Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Think about their net worth combined. And we're like, whoa, who could possibly need or use that much money? Well, the the answer is they can't. Not if they spent their entire life trying to spend the money. They just couldn't do it. They have so much. And we're impressed by that. But think about this. Their net worth combined doesn't even warrant a single decimal point on God's spreadsheet of holdings. It's not one decimal point, my friends. Why? Because it's all his. It's all His. Remember, our Heavenly Father is wealthy beyond measure. He holds the earth in His right hand like a shiny penny. And He holds the sun and the moon in His left as a nickel. And all the stars are in His pockets as loose change. That is how wealthy God is, my friends. So, Can we pray and ask our Father to provide for our financial needs and then trust in faith that he will provide? Absolutely. Yes. God is not in short supply of anything. And as Jesus said, your Heavenly Father delights in giving good gifts to his children. He's not stingy. He's not just holding out on us because, you know, he's he's stingy or something like that. He delights in blessing his children. But remember... Gaining more money for its own sake is not to be our aim. It is simply to be seen as another means, a tool, by which we can serve the Lord and advance His kingdom. That is ultimately what money is for. As I said, it is a tool, one that God puts into our hands to put a roof over our heads, daily bread on the table, and to invest wisely in advancing the spread of the gospel. And advancing his heavenly kingdom, which is the only thing that will endure for eternity. A book I have learned a great deal from on this subject is entitled God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. It's written by Costi Hinn. And in it, he tells his personal story of being raised in the prosperity teaching under his uncle Benny Hinn. And how through scripture, he came to see the error within the prosperity doctrine. And he shares specifically how it was ingrained within him from a young age that the wealthy and the healthy were blessed by God and the poor and the unhealthy were not. And then he shares how God helped show him the truth. He writes, A few years ago I had the privilege of heading across the border to Mexico with a group from our church to do some missions work and build a home for a family experiencing extreme poverty. The family of five lived in the slums of Tijuana and I was floored by how they lived. Yet, they were so happy. There was hardly a bathroom in sight, and the one we were offered was not much more than a hole in the ground and a bucket for washing up. Children played soccer in the dirt, oblivious to the fact that we had just traveled from one of the richest counties in the richest nation on earth, the United States. They weren't looking for an Xbox, complaining about their iPads needing to be charged or telling their mums that their shoes were out of style. Most of them didn't even have shoes. And as the days went by, we continued to meet families and children who embodied what it meant to be joyful and content. When we completed the home, it was little more than a wooden box on top of concrete. But they acted like we had built them the Ritz-Carlton. The family fed us like kings, And at the end of our trip, our group leader told us that the family had spent a month's wages in order to feed us. Hearing that, some of our group began to cry and beg the host to let us pay back the money. But the family refused. Why? Well, through a translator, the mother said, the joy of giving far outweighed the sacrifice. And there wasn't a dry eye as we prayed together that day. You see, though that family was poor in this world, they were rich in faith and joy and generosity. I like how another author, Randy Elcorn, puts it. He says, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live eternally. God entrusts me with his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. And so in conclusion today, if, like the slaves in the Roman Empire, your Heavenly Father hasn't blessed you with very much money, but you have food and clothing, be content. Be a good witness. Use what you have to advance the gospel. Flee the trap of greed and pursue God's spiritual and eternal blessings. And if your Heavenly Father has blessed you with a lot of money be content be a good witness use what you have to advance the gospel flee the trap of greed and pursue God's spiritual and eternal blessings this is the word of the Lord may we receive it today amen heavenly father thank you that you are the giver of all good gifts including our physical needs including our money But, O Lord, help us today to see the error of pursuing money and wealth for its own sake. Even more, help us to forsake the notion that somehow it is a, a symbol of our spiritual status or standing before you. No, Lord, that is not so. Instead, may we be those who, like that family in Tijuana, can exemplify contentment regardless of our financial standing knowing, Lord, that we can be a faithful witness to you, whether we are called to be a slave or a master. That is not the point of life. The point is to point to you, Jesus, to further the spread of the gospel in all that we say or do, in whatever position you have placed us, whether in in want or in plenty. And so, Father, I pray that for all of us here today, we would hold on to this, your word, and recognize that where there is error around us, where there are those who are saying we need to use you as a means to financial gain somehow, Father, I pray that we would recognize that as an error that we should not listen to, and instead hold on to your truth, that this life, Lord, we are just sojourners here. Help us to spend our time and our energy pursuing that which will endure for eternity with you in your kingdom. And thank you, Lord, that we are already promised that through faith in Jesus Christ, this inheritance is secured for us, one that will not perish, fade, or spoil in any way. It is secure for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this, Lord. We glorify your name. Amen.